Welcome back to a part two of a special bonus episode of Teaching with the Body and Mind. And if you heard part one, you know it's just myself, Ross, and Mike. Hey, Ross. And we're we're kind of adding, uh, we're answering some questions for the Active Learner magazine article that we're we were asked to write from uh, a representative of a high scope at the from the last national conference we were presenting at. So, yeah, and that um, was that was uh, me, Ross, Joey, and Tom. It was our whole podcast team that presented and they were interested just in the idea of having a learning community yeah and mike and i agreed we could try to somehow wrangle our half day workshop into you know about two thousand words so we'll yeah, see if we yeah. can, as you've heard from part one we're probably about a thousand words in so maybe we'll have the part two here but uh, yeah as we were talking before we kind of talked about the group how it came about and where what we've kind of taken away and learned um but one thing that i uh, also we talked about in the presentation that we wanted to mention in the article were these aha moments. And actually, Mike, it was related to what we talked about uh, last, the, in the part one, was your aha moment was that, that sitting episode, the discussion yeah, that we did. Yeah, so there was an episode, and it was actually a bonus episode around um, Christmas or New Year's of 2018. I don't know when people are listening to this one. Yeah. And I heard it again and realized the f- when we first recorded that, I didn't have an answer. I just asked the question, what if we thought about sitting as an emergent skill the way we, as teachers, think of literacy? Mm-hmm. Admittedly, that's probably what occupational therapists already do. But yeah. as teachers, I'd never taken that perspective. Right. So I just asked the question, what are the skills that kids need to learn to sit in a chair and it was a really interesting discussion. And what I found funny hearing it, whatever, a year, year and a half later, was that all my presentations, I talk about these things that at the time mm-hmm. were new revelations for me. And a lot of them I've read in different parts, but I've never heard anyone just sort of say, well, think about sitting. Yeah. You know, if you want a kid to sit you don't in a chair, you don't make them sit in a chair. If you want them to learn how to sit in a chair, you don't make them sit in a chair. You make them move around. Right, And I know that's essentially one of the foundations of occupational therapy, mm-hmm. but as a teacher, it's like against everything you learn. Yeah. Like, no, you keep telling them to sit down right. and they'll, and someday they'll magically do it or something. Right. Well, I don't think even as we kind of t- discussed in that episode too, or maybe that going back to the perspectives that we often take is that, you know, we have it from the teacher lens, but as a parent too, that you just kind of expect that your children will just sit and right. do what you say forgetting that they have to learn that it's a, it, there's a milestone yeah, in, yeah. In, the, in during infancy around you know the first you know, like four to six months where they're finally going to be able to sit slouched kind of they'll be able to sit up for yeah, a while yeah. and unsupported but yeah that's a whole process that gets right. them to learn where in the eight ten months they're sitting up you know unsupported for right, longer right. and they're more there's more control because we yeah. know from we get into the jargony terms of cephalocaudal and proximal distal developments why, how the how and why that happens but as a parent you're just like you know, well now you don't need the pillows to balance right, you right. we don't have to sit you in the crease of the couch yeah. but right like, again it's just something you just do rather than thinking about it as another skill as right. you would think about numeracy and literacy and so it was yeah. a really good discussion and I think you know in a way um, not to get too far into it but I think what we really did with that episode is we looked at teaching as rather than think of it as education think of it as development mm-hmm because I think what happens when you just think of things as teaching is, oh, this is what they do in first grade, and then slowly it became an expectation of kindergarten, and now I think it's an expectation of preschool. Right. And 
child development hasn't changed over a hundred thousand years, right? But our expectations have, mm-hmm. and so it's this thing where we have to remind ourselves. Well, wait yeah. a minute. What do they need to learn first, and how do they learn that? How do mm-hmm. they develop that? But still, somehow having that discussion hadn't occurred to me. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, and now it's just so much a part of what I do. Um, so that was definitely for me a moment where. I don't know if I'm sure occupational therapists have actually said the same exact thing to me before because mm-hmm. I've taken workshops or, or, you know, like a special needs class or something. But somehow having that discussion with other teachers, like, well, what does that mean when you're in a classroom and a kid won't sit down while you're reading a book? Mm-hmm. You know, like, so I, it was somehow this aha moment of like, oh, it's not the kid that needs to change. It's me trying to read a book. Yeah. Yeah. Or me expecting everybody to sit down for a book rather right. than the kids who want to look at the book right you know it seems so obvious but and i guess you have to be willing to be a little vulnerable of like yeah hey what i've just been doing for the last 10 years was kind of stupid yeah um uh no judgment but you know i don't have to do that anymore that, right. i guess that's the the thing but yeah so for me that was definitely an aha moment yeah of, oh and i and like i said i probably have been told it verbally mm-hmm by an expert right but it didn't mean the same thing and yeah, we had the discussion it was like oh yeah this is what I need to do mm-hmm. so well and that's where I was thinking my aha moment was really kind of recognizing how I was you know a child who had, was told to sit and sit still right, and right. could sit still and would really struggle with that and eventually figured out the ways to fidget and move while still being within the rules, but still knowing I needed something. And I think that was my aha moment that I kind of talked about uh, when we were at National. And that I wanted to be a teacher that that would allow those opportunities, recognize that I wasn't wanting to teach the same way and seeing some children who were very much like myself and going, because early on, I think I, I was still, this is what the teacher does, this is what the children will do. So even though when you were growing up, you knew that this is not the teacher I want to be, but then you started to become, or move in that direction? That- I think it was just by def- a weird default of like, this is what I think a teacher should be. And it right. was in those early, even going through the program at the university and living and understanding and nobody's going to question you on that like culturally I think that's right well yeah that's what a teacher does right and but I was recognizing that yeah there was an inherent need to move for myself why would I deny why would I be denying how can I incorporate more movement in really being that teacher that would allow opportunities for movement and also being someone who can tell other teachers to do that knowing that they might be going to other programs or environments where it may be kind of frowned upon or right. discouraged but to say you know what children need you know right that if you're always saying sit still crisscross applesauce put a bubble in your mouth do all these things that's a fight you have to do every day whereas if you honor that movement you plan for that movement and you actually celebrate and incorporate that movement throughout your day you realize not only do you have kind of probably better behavioral management skills, the bigger and more important part is that your children are actually enjoying and learning more because right. they're learning optimally rather than 
as you were talking about with sitting, like I have to learn how to sit and then I have to think about so much right, right. while I'm trying to sit in this space rather than absorbing the information you're actually telling me right. from, you know, from the teacher. So I think that aha moment being um, really trying to be the teacher that I wanted yeah. when I was young. Yeah. So that's your aha moment that maybe attracted you to the group yeah. but how about during our discussions do you remember I mean last episode you talked a little bit about the stacking the chairs mm-hmm. but can you think of another aha moment like during either the podcast recording or even yeah. earlier discussions there, there's I mean definitely so many it's actually what's hardest to kind of pull, right, right. pull an example I say every single episode I'm like oh I gotta try that yep yep there would be I would and I think that uh, we brought up the idea of kind of the ledge or climbing. Oh, yeah. And uh, in a m- more recent episode and in our discussion, we had a picture of the ledge that Tom had in his classroom. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's often sparked kind of scoffs and <gasps> concerned, you know, participants seeing this picture of a, of a ledge that's probably, what, three and a half or four feet up maybe off the ground? I'd say three and a half. Probably, yeah, maybe yeah. three, three and a half feet. Um and the idea of um, what you know, can children go on this stuff? And I, I know early in our discussions too, I've talked about the ledge that we had, the concrete ledge going to our yeah, playground. Yeah. And I think similar to that aha moment of kind of um, your your bringing up of the chairs and me asking that, it really kind of continued through. Is this why do I do this? Right. Why am I? Why do we so have so much? Just the idea of reflecting on. What you're doing. Yeah. And so, like, why can't children climb up and down this ledge? They want to do it all the time. And I know they're capable to do it. So that aha moment of really kind of finding that trust inside myself of, yeah, I I do believe these children can do it. And that we don't have to do these things the same way that we always have. Yeah. But really trusting children's ability to take their own risks and you know that idea of I guess risk benefit analysis too yeah oh that's definitely one that I feel like in the discussions I again I may have heard or read something about it but somehow in the discussions of what is that what is the process of a risk benefit analysis and I think it was through our discussions that really it made it real Mm -hmm. and it because everyone had anecdotes about this and I could see like you know yeah, this could be a risky situation. Yes, there could be potential for children getting hurt or things coming up. But what's the reward from this? What is that self-concept that grows? What's the strength and skill level that really increases because of this? And I feel like that's just something else that's really kind of... And it's again, it's something that I actually probably lived and felt inside myself definitely through childhood mm-hmm. and would really kind of vacillate with back and forth. Right. But... Then as a teacher, it was like, no, we have to do keep people safe and do these things by the rules and go, well, but am I taking things away? Right. Because I would have wanted to have climbed up that ledge or climbed right. to the top of those bars and jumped down, and right. I could have done it. Yeah. But a teacher, if they would have always said, nope, 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 I would either have... I, I would not have been the student like, well, I'm going to do it anyways, and they're not looking. I'd have been like, right. okay, I guess I'm not supposed to do that. I'll never do that. And I would almost lock it into this, right. like... Well, I should never do this. I should never do that. And in, in a way, we often think of risk-benefit analysis as often these big physical challenges, jumping from the high, highest step or climbing that really you know difficult terrain or tree. But I think 
there's that subtlety of that social risk or that emotional risk, like with dancing, that how many children will hear the music and inherently just start moving. And you'll see adults who are comfortable and will do it. And then there's adults who are like, nope, I, I don't yep, know how to yep. Yes, you you could easily rock back and forth to the beat, right, no problem. Right. But you won't because you're worried you're not going to do it right. right. And so I feel like there's, there's that aspect of that kind of pushing yourself, challenging yourself in other social, emotional, risky situations that children do and we can... I don't want to limit those. So I think that's where that, maybe that's it. I'm really trying to, again, be that teacher that I want to see children, honor them. And Mm -hmm. I think that's really helped through these reflection groups. I think my aha moments are often many throughout, but it's that, because it comes back to that reflection of. Yeah. In some ways, almost, it's the process itself that's the biggest aha. Yeah. I think that's true for me, too. It's like practicing that reflection, because reflection is a practice. And if you Mm -hmm. don't do it for a while, you can lose touch with it. I mean, you can learn again. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I would definitely recommend people trying this out. Um, I want to make sure we talk about the fact that this is the topic that we connected on. Right. But people can connect on whatever topic they're interested in or mm-hmm. whatever thing drives them. Right. Almost like book club where yeah. you're going to have a book and it could be any book, but you book clubs come together under one book to discuss something. Right. I think that's, in a sense, kind of how this group formed. We were talking Big Body Rough and Tumble, right. but Tom would bring initially these like video clips or questions, yeah, yeah. and then we would each in, had the invitation to start bringing right. parts. But we realized that it would often, we would just stick with one or maybe two of the things that people brought. Right. And that was okay, because we could each pull... Yeah. Parts through. So I think that idea of having having a topic that isn't just like So maybe the, the group rules of could school. be yeah, the group could be together maybe for play, but then when you get together any one specific time, make it about something really small, really specific so that you can right. go a little deeper. You can go deeper and then it can it can kind of splinter out to other yeah, sub questions yeah. or topics of discussion which can be really valuable and that right. might be depending on the size of your group and I think that also has been great because we've been a we have been a smaller group we probably no more than seven or eight at right. any one discussion group yeah, early yeah. on but I think if you if you have a staff of you know like your Mike yours is about 60 people in, yeah. in your heart you might come together as a whole staff have a, have a group but then break out into groups of four six right. whatever because right. If it's too big, it's really hard to have everybody contribute. Yeah, or feel you like definitely want people to be able to talk. Yeah, um, and, and not everyone is a talker too. I mean, right. one thing, the reason I think the four of us started the podcast, even though there are other people involved, is that we're all talkers. Yeah, as um, you've noticed, we all do this as a volunteer, kind of getting together. Right. It's not, it's not something we meet during staff time right. or. We, we've just really enjoyed and I think valued the time together right so we keep coming back to it and we also have I think the flexibility where we know sometimes like with the discussion group I can't make it this time right it was only once a month that yeah. we were doing it and even our recording sessions without you know pulling the curtain back too much but you know we don't meet weekly to record an right. episode we, we do batch them together yeah which makes it more doable I think if we had to try to do a weekly recording that would be a big challenge right but I think what I'm thinking within a staff, like maybe you carve out, if you do a weekly staff meeting, maybe once a month right. you have discussion group. Or maybe yeah. there's 
And there's such validity to having those conversations. Like I think sometimes as a supervisor, you can start to worry about, yeah. that's valuable meeting time. It's like, exactly. Like, right. And this is really valuable. And I do think trying to focus on a topic so that mm-hmm. they come, people come back to the same topic. Maybe you choose one topic for the mm-hmm. year, but keep going deeper and deeper on that same topic. Yeah. If it's not work-based, I think geography is important because I think face-to-face yeah. is important. If Absolutely. you're not as much of a talker, I think having an email out or text out ahead of time of this is what we're talking about mm-hmm. and maybe someone writes... Well, maybe people don't know this, but Tom often has his things written out. Mm-hmm. We record a podcast. His yeah. is all written out first. Yeah. And the rest of us kind of throw him off track pretty yeah. quickly each time. He always thinks yeah. he's going to talk about one thing. And yeah. he, he usually has questions he wants to pose, and we don't always go there. So if you need to show up with something written, mm-hmm. that that works. But I think there's something about face-to-face. I mean, there are yeah. chat groups, and maybe you'll find one. But I think what we're talking about is very much a face-to-face thing. It's the back and forth that really makes these yeah. things important. And so it can't just be, oh, I post and five days later someone else posts. Yeah, That's a different thing. That, yeah. that it's still a valuable thing in some ways, but it's not as reflective. Yeah. And to kind of wrap it up, is because I know we could keep talking more and more, but we should probably uh, bring it to a close. I think that... Because we each valued the discussions, we were we kind of made a schedule where we yeah. could plan, and I think it was a third Sunday each month right. initially, and we we would just know that we had that time, and if you could make it, great. If you couldn't, you couldn't. There's a little bit of an informality to it, also. Yeah. yeah. In that sense, I think that's important. That it's not work. It's you're exactly. choosing to be there. So right. Whatever whatever that means to you, I think that's important. Just find that group to reflect with. Thanks, everybody, for you know listening to us. Hopefully you had a chance to listen to both parts, but also if you have a chance, take a peek at the article uh, in The Active Learner through um, and join HighScope's uh, membership. Yeah, it's so highscope.org, and you can become a member. It's free, and then you have access to not just this article, but all the issues of Active Learner, which each issue has several articles. So, yeah, thanks. Yeah, thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to Teaching with the Body and Bond. We'll be back again next week with another episode. Music is by Big Wheel Popcorn.